Uh, welcome to all those of you who are gathered with us this morning to worship our great God. Uh, you will know, if you were here last week, that we're starting a new sermon series. Uh, we're starting uh, the Gospel of John, and we're going to be in this great book of Scripture uh, for the next weeks and uh, months. Uh, we do offer a resource at the beginning of every sermon series that has the text of Scripture on one side and uh, a place for notes on the other. So if you want to keep track of your notes as we work through the Gospel of John, this resource is available to you. Randy is in the process of handing it out. If you'd like one, please raise your hand or give him a uh, pregnant look, and uh, he'll know that he should give you one. Uh, those are freely available, so if you'd like one, simply raise your hand and ask for one. Turn in the Bible to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. The Gospel of John, chapter 1, we will be uh, meditating today on verses 1 through 18, what is called the prologue, or the introduction to John's Gospel. John 1, 1 through 18. Let's hear God's word together. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we are confronted with this amazing fact that you, though you were the eternal Son, set aside your glory at the right hand of God and entered into this dark, evil world. You became a man that we might be reconciled to the Father. Lord Jesus, in your incarnation, in your coming into this world, we see your willingness to disadvantage yourself, to set aside your rights and prerogatives as God, that we might experience the forgiveness of our sins. Lord, we thank you for your love and your self-giving as expressed in your incarnation. We confess that often our lives are not characterized by the same kind of sacrificial love. We are frequently very selfish, seeking our own desires, trampling on others, doing what we please and what we want. Lord, we confess this to you, Lord, and we confess also our desire to be more like you, 
Please grant that all of our lives would be increasingly characterized by sacrificial service and love to the people around us, that in some small way we might reflect your self-giving love. We ask that you would be pleased to use your word this morning, Lord, to deepen our confidence in you, to cause us to see more of who you are, and to live more and more for you. Bless the proclamation of your word today. Amen. Uh, so this gospel that we turn to, uh, as you probably know, is the, the fourth of the four uh, gospels, four books in the New Testament concerning the life, the teaching, the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, this was probably the gospel that was written last, and it was written by uh, one of Jesus's apostles, one of the twelve, uh, John the son of Zebedee, one of Jesus's inner, inner circle. He would have witnessed, uh, of course, the ministry of Jesus Christ, the teaching, the death and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, there is reference in this gospel to a character uh, who is referred to as the one whom Jesus loved. And we recognize that that is almost certainly John the gospel writer. So he refers to himself. But we're told explicitly at the end of the gospel, uh, chapter 21, verse 24, this is the disciple who is hearing, uh, who is bearing witness about these things and who has written about these things. This is an acknowledgement that the, the one whom Jesus loved is also the writer of the gospel. This gospel was written probably around 80 AD, and as I said, it would have been written after Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John would have almost certainly been familiar with those other gospels, and in some ways, what he says here in, in John's gospel, the fourth gospel, uh, complements what we learn in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. For example, uh, while those Gospels tell us a lot about the ministry of Jesus in the north, in Galilee, uh, John fills in a lot of the gaps and tells us about Jesus' ministry in the south, in Judea, in Jerusalem, and Samaria. So what we have then in this wonderful book is eyewitness testimony of an apostle to the incarnate God, Jesus Christ. And the prologue and introduction to the Gospel of John uh, includes in seed form many of the main ideas that we're going to see later on in this gospel. That contrast between darkness and light, for example. The opposition to Jesus Christ. Uh, the emphasis on glory. All of those themes are already anticipated in this introduction or prologue. Now, the most significant question that all of us could ask and answer today is this. Who is Jesus Christ? Who is Jesus Christ? There is no more fundamental or important question. Was he just a, a particularly wise teacher whose words we should seek to obey, whose example we should seek to follow? Was he a, a great prophet of God, maybe even the greatest prophet of God, who spoke to us the words of God, but he himself was something less? Or is he, as John suggests in the prologue, something more than even that? Uh, if you compare the beginning of John's gospel with the others, Matthew, Mark, Luke, uh, when they start telling you about Jesus, they take you to the beginning of his earthly life, tell you how he was born in Bethlehem uh, to Mary. But when John wants to tell you about Jesus, to help you understand who he is, he takes you back to the ultimate beginning, the, the beginning of the created order when God, who is eternal, summoned everything into existence. He takes us all the way back to the absolute beginning so we can understand who Jesus is. This morning, as we look at the prologue, I want us to see three things. First, the identity of Jesus in verses 1 through 5. Second, the mission of Jesus in verses 9 through 13. 
And finally, the incarnation of Jesus, God becoming man, in verses 14 through 18. Identity, mission, and incarnation. So, first thing we need to ask as we look at that opening verse, in the beginning was the Word. Why does John refer to the eternal Son as Word or Logos? Of course, when answering this kind of question, the proper background is the Old Testament. When we turn to the Old Testament, we see that God's Word is His powerful self-expression in creation, salvation, and revelation. It is through His Word that God makes Himself known. And the Son is God's Word in the sense that the Son perfectly reflects the Father. If you want to know what God is like, you look to the Son. Even the concept of word suggests this. What do we do with words? We communicate our thoughts, right? We make our, ourselves known to one another. And the idea here is that God makes himself known in his Son. And there are several significant affirmations about the word. Number one, the word is eternal. In the beginning was the word. Now, we are meant, in these opening words, to see an echo of the opening words of the Bible and of the book of Genesis, which begins, in the beginning, God, God created. John is telling us that the Son was already there when all other things were summoned into existence. Before the beginning of creation, nothing existed but God. He alone is eternal. And created things began to exist when they were summoned into existence by the Creator. But John is telling us when created things were brought into existence, the Word already was. Like God, verse 2, He was in the beginning, ready as it were to welcome the creatures that He has made because He has already existed from all eternity. The Word has no beginning. There was never a time when he was not. Go back as far as you want into the dark depths of eternity past, and you will always find the Word with God. The Word is eternal. And then John makes explicit what is implied by that statement, namely that the Word is God. Uh, look at the end of verse 1. The Word was God. The Word is identified with God. He has all the perfections of the divine nature. In every sense, he is God. And yet, intriguingly, look at verse 1b, he is distinguished from God. The Word was with God. That expression implies a personal distinction between the Word and God. That expression with God also indicates that there was a relationship between the Word and God, or the Son and the Father. There's a relationship characterized by love and mutual delight. This is implied throughout the gospel and stated throughout the gospel, but you see this uh, clearly in verse 18 in our passage. Uh, we are told that the Son of God, who is at the Father's side. Now that expression, the Father's side, in the Greek is literally, he was in the bosom of the Father. And our translators didn't say it that way because it comes across as slightly odd in English. Does it mean he's in the bosom of the Father? They say that he's uh, at his side. But that doesn't quite capture the, the overtones of love and affection between the Father and the Son. 
There's a New Testament scholar, uh, Michael Kruger, who says that perhaps um, when a father hugs his son, his, son, his son's head is uh, on his chest, on his bosom, and it might be something like that. Well, whatever the case is, uh, the point is that there is this tremendous intimacy and love between the father and the son. Before there are any creatures, angels and people, the son delighted in the father, the father delighted in the son. And so we have here some of the crucial elements of the Christian understanding of the Trinity. This is at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. We believe that God is one, but he's triune. There are three crucial affirmations we need to make biblically when we, to understand the doctrine of the Trinity. And these are these aff- the affirmations. First, there is only one God. It's plain everywhere in scripture, there's only one unique, transcendent, eternal God who summoned everything into existence. Christians are monotheists, there is one God. At the same time, we acknowledge personal distinctions within the larger unity of the one God. There are three persons in God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And third, each of these persons is fully divine. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is fully divine. Now, the church has freely confessed and admitted historically that this is a mystery past our understanding. But it's important to say these three things if you're going to say everything the Bible says about God and about the persons of the Godhead. These these formulations, these affirmations are intended to capture everything that Scripture says about God and about the persons of the Godhead. Uh, This is not the result of a kind of speculative mindset in the early centuries of of the church. This is the result of trying to formulate uh, the truth about God in terms of what God has said about himself in scripture. This formulation tries to capture the fact that God is not more one than three or three than one. St. Augustine famously said, uh, it is not one thing for God to be and another to be three. His threeness and his oneness are equally essential to his being. This has all kinds of implications. Uh, One thing it means is that our God has always loved. When John says in 1 John, God is love, it means that God doesn't have to go outside of himself to love. God is a community of persons in himself, and so even before there were creatures and men and angels, the Father loved the Son, Son loved the Father, the Holy Spirit loved the Son, and the Father. There was within God himself love and fellowship and relationship. Think for a moment if God had been monopersonal. One God, one person. Uh, If that had been the case, which it isn't, would God have been capable of showing love before he created? There was nobody to love, right? It's just the one God There are no other persons to love. He would have had to create other beings, humans, angels, to show love. And what that demonstrates is that love is not essential to his very being. But what the doctrine of the Trinity captures is that God is love in and of himself, and he has been for all eternity. God didn't create human beings because he was lonely and needed relationship. He had it from all eternity. He created beings to bring them into fellowship with himself, with a father, with the Son, and with the Holy Spirit. God creates not out of loneliness, but out of relational fullness. 
to bring us into that great eternal fellowship of the persons of the Godhead. So, we honor and love each person of the Godhead. We honor and love the Father, who before the foundation of the world decreed our salvation. We honor and love the Son, who became man and suffered and died for our sins. We honor and love the Holy Spirit, who imparts spiritual life to us and renews us so that we increasingly reflect Jesus Christ. We have fellowship with the one God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So the word, eternal, he was there at the beginning of all things. And then John goes on to say he was also God's agent in creation. Verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him, here's the negative side of the coin, without him was not anything made that was made. Nothing that has the status of created was created apart from the eternal son. He brought everything into existence. In him was life. Where does life come from, ultimately? Obviously, life is not something that we possess in and of ourselves. We receive it. We receive it from our parents, but ultimately, we receive it from the fountain of life, God himself. Unlike us, God has life in himself. He has it necessarily and essentially in himself, and he shares it with us when he brings us into existence, when he creates us. John tells us that that life was the light of men. The idea here seems to be that when the Son gave life to creatures, he also gave them some knowledge of who God is, of their creator. That's the light, knowledge of God. Now, John doesn't spell out how this works. If you want more information about this, you go to Paul, read Romans 1. talks about how God has revealed himself in creation. But the idea here is that in giving us life, the Son has also given us uh, by creating us some knowledge of who God is. He gives us knowledge of God in salvation, knowledge of God in creation. And this light, this knowledge of God, burns in the darkness in, in the midst of this evil world, and this evil world was not able to snuff out that light. The revelation of God that comes to us in Jesus is not overcome by the darkness. Indeed, it will overcome the darkness. So the thrust of these opening five verses is that the one who becomes man in verse 14, the one who becomes flesh, is also eternal God who made everything. Uh, who is it that came into the world as man? None other than the Son of God who created everything. And we need to recognize that the deity of Christ, his divinity, his godness, is essential for our salvation. A man, a mere man, even a good man, even a perfect man, could not take away the sins of the world. The reason that Christ can take away the sins of the world, carry them, and take them away from us at the cross, is because in Christ, God himself has acted for our salvation. God himself has acted in Jesus to redeem us from the guilt and power of sin, and that's why it will certainly be taken away. I mean, if God does something, it will certainly come to pass. If God himself has acted to save us from sin, we will certainly be saved from sin. That should be a tremendously encouraging thought to us. When the end of this life comes, and we contemplate eternity and leaving this world, it will be no small comfort to us that God himself has entered history 
and he himself has acted powerfully on our behalf to take away our guilt and sin. That's a place to stand. That's a source of tremendous encouragement. If God has saved me, then who can do anything to thwart that salvation? It's a source of tremendous encouragement. So these opening five verses emphasize the deity, uh, the divinity of Jesus Christ. He is truly God. Then in verse six, six through 13, we have a description of his mission. What did he come to do? And from verse five to verse six, we transition from the absolute beginning of everything to the ministry of John the Baptist, whom God sent into the world to be a witness to Jesus, to tell everybody about Jesus and say, hey, believe in him. And we're gonna see more about his ministry next week. But John came to witness to the true light. That's how verse nine refers to the word or to the son. He's the true light. Notice in verse four and five, the word gives light. And now in verse nine, he is identified with the light. The light which gives light to everyone. And the idea here is that the truth about God burns brightly and fully and completely in Jesus. If you want to know what God is like, then you look at the son who came into the, our world because that's where the light about God, the truth about God, shines. What is God like? Look to Jesus. Now, how would you have expected people in our world to respond when the ultimate truth about God shines on them? God has come at last he has given us his highest and best self-revelation in the person of his son. How would you have expected people to respond to that self-revelation uh, self of God? Well, verses 10 and 11 tell us. The response was not unqualified joy that God has come to us. It's the exact opposite. And this anticipates a key theme in John's gospel, which is opposition to the person and work of Jesus. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. This is not an innocent ignorance. This is a blindness that results from a radical hatred of God. Human beings, untouched by God's grace, are not running toward God. They're running away from God. When the light, when the truth about God shows up in human history, what they want to do is snuff it out. What they want to do is obscure it and attack it, or at least run from it. By nature, we are not running to God. We are running from God. So when this final manifestation of God in the person of his son comes, we find the world characteristically rejecting it, as we see even in our own age. And it's not just the world as a whole. Look at verse 11. It's the Jews as well, his own people. Jesus was a Jew. He came to the Jews. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. There's a rejection even by those who had been long prepared for his coming. But that's not the only response to the coming of the light. Verses 12 and 13. Some believed by God's grace. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, here's the positive response, he gave the right to become children of God. That's why I came in the world. So the light comes into the world. And the great question is, how do I receive it? How do I accept it? And John explains to us what it means to receive the light. Notice verse 12, he says, all who did receive it, 
who believed in his name. Notice how that word believe explains received. How do you receive the light? You believe in him. What does it mean to believe in him? Well, the first thing it means is you accept as true what Jesus says about himself and what John says about Jesus. You accept as true that Jesus really is God in the flesh. You accept as true that he lived a life of perfect obedience to the Father. You accept as true that he died for our sins and that he rose from the dead. You accept it. This is in fact right. This is the truth and I receive it. But secondly, to, to receive Christ, to believe in him, means also that you, there's a personal trust. There's a personal trust in Jesus. You rest in him, you rely on him to help you. So when my kids were younger and they couldn't swim, I would try to coax them into the pool by saying, hey, I'm gonna catch you. You know, you can jump in and, and you can trust that I, as your father, love you, have your best interest at heart, and I'm capable of helping you and I'm not gonna let you drown. Jump in, trust me, I'm gonna help you. And sometimes they would trust me and sometimes they wouldn't. When they did rely on me, when they did trust me, they would jump in and I'd catch them, right? They had a confidence, they didn't just know, in theory, it's possible for dad to catch me and I know that he wants to catch me but I'm not gonna jump, right? They knew the fact, but they also relied on me and actually jumped in my arms. That's what it means to trust in Jesus. We jump in his arms. We don't just know, know true things about him, but we rest in him as our savior. We say to him, Lord, I'm a rebel. I have turned from God. I can't heal my relationship with God. I am under the judgment of God and I can't put things right. But Lord, you can. And I rest in you to do that. Jesus is willing and able to save us from our sins. And the proper response is to simply rely on his work. Personal trust is at the heart of it. Key question for you today is, are you trusting in Jesus Christ as your savior? Are you resting in him? Are you just sitting on the edge of the pool saying, I know true things about Jesus? Or have you actually thrown yourself into his arms and rested in him for salvation? There is, there is no more significant question you can pose to yourself today. Don't shrug it off. Have you received the light that God has sent into the world? Are you trusting in him? Now notice that those who believed in him are given a great privilege, verse 12. Look what Jesus does, does for the, those people. He gave the right to become children of God. Amazing. Everybody who trusts in the Son is not simply forgiven of their sins, that's true, but they become part of the family of God. They are given the privilege of calling God Father. John, in his letter, talks about how the love of God is displayed in the fact that he welcomes us, welcomes us as children. 1 John 3.1 See what kind of love the Father has given to us. That we should be called children of God, and so we are. John says to us, look how amazing God's love is for us. He has given us the right to be his sons and daughters, and he is our Father. I mean, God could have just forgiven us, right? We could have just been forgiven creatures, but not sons and daughters. But when God came to save us, he wanted to bring us all the way in and be as close to us as possible. And so we are granted through Jesus the right of being the children of God. That's God's heart towards you, by the way. How do you think God views you? 
Like when God looks at you, at your life, what do you think his heart is towards you, his attitude is towards you? So often when we experience countless unfulfilled desires in life, constant disappointments and the weariness of life, it's easy for doubts to creep in and we think, oh, God accepts me, he accepts me through Jesus. Uh, but we, send, we feel that he's aloof and almost indifferent to our plight and to our need. John is challenging us to, to not think that way. John is saying, look, God's heart overflows with a fatherly affection for you. God delights in you. He loves you, and in everything he does, he is seeking your good. Is that the, is that the mental picture you have of God when he looks at you? Of a father whose heart is to do you good? That's the way we should view our relationship with God. He cherishes us, delights in us, and welcomes us as his children. And then finally note in verse 13, that all those who are children of God through faith in Jesus are also born of God. They are not simply born physically, they don't just have life from their parents, physical life, but they are born of God. And this, of course, also anticipates a significant theme in the Gospel of John. Uh, John chapter 3 will talk about the need for the new birth and spiritual life. But what John is saying here is that those who have Jesus have been given spiritual life by God the Father through the Holy Spirit. Prior to your conversion, prior to faith in Jesus, you were spiritually dead. You had physical life, but not spiritual life. Your heart was bent toward rebellion against the Creator. You loved what was evil and hated the light and hated God. But at conversion, when someone trusts in Jesus, a miracle happens. God the Holy Spirit reaches down into the roots of our being and reconfigures everything. He puts in our souls a love for God and a desire for the things of God that radically tr transforms the course of our lives. Whereas once we hated God and everything to do with him, now we increasingly love God, desire to draw near to God and obey his commands. It's a bit like this. Uh, a few years ago, I became violently ill and I uh, di didn't want anything to do with coffee, which is very uncharacteristic for me. I like coffee. Uh, but it was like I had it right before I had the illness. And so when I was sick, I, even the thought of coffee was loathsome. I didn't want anything to do with it. Had no taste for it. But a few days later, so I began to get better, wanted coffee again. My appetite, my, my taste went back to normal. Now, the new birth is a little bit like that. Don't, don't press the analogy too far, but it's a little bit like that, right? We once had no taste for God, no taste for spiritual things. Wouldn't want to pray, worship God, meet with his people. We loved evil. We had taste for evil. But then when we trusted in Jesus and the Holy Spirit changed our heart, our tastes, our loves at the deepest level of our being were transformed, and we develop a taste for God. Increasingly, prayer didn't seem like a great irrelevant thing. There's something in us that's drawn to prayer, drawn to worship, drawn to God's word, drawn towards holiness and obedience. What used to seem very suffocating to us now appears delightful. Obedience to God seems life-giving rather than suffocating. All of those are indications spiritual life. Uh, do you know that every single one of you who have placed your faith in Jesus Christ have seen a miracle? 
or at least see the consequences of a miracle. And that miracle is the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit in your soul. God has done that for you. He is the source of our life. Uh, And this is why, incidentally, it's possible for us to walk in obedience to God. Because of this radical transformation produced by the Holy Spirit, it is possible for us increasingly to live lives that are truly honoring to God. So that's the mission of Jesus. He's come into the world that we might be the children of God and experience spiritual life. Now, finally, uh, verses 14 through 18 give us the crescendo, the climax of this whole section. And the climax is that the eternal word introduced to us in verses one through five, so remember everything I just said about the word, uh, eternal creator God, one through five, that same God became flesh, became man. Now, the, the word choice is interesting here. John could have said that he became man, or he could have said that he took on a body, different words, but he says he took, he took on flesh, he became flesh, or sarks in the Greek. It's a very blunt and raw way of saying it. The eternal God embraced all the physicality of creaturely existent, uh, existence. He became like us in every sense, without, of course, ceasing to be God. God became man, man in the flesh. He dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. A glory is one of the significant words in the Bible. In the Old Testament, glory refers to the outward display of God's intrinsic majesty. So at Sinai, when you have the cloud covering the mountain, you see God's glory, his greatness manifest tangibly to our senses. But if you ask the question, where do we see the ultimate display of God's glory? John is telling you, it's in Jesus. Jesus is the radiance of God's majesty. That's what he's, that where we see what he's really like. When, when he says, we have seen his glory, in the first instance, John is talking about the original eyewitnesses to Jesus, himself and the other, other apostles, right? They actually saw the glory of God in Christ with their eyes. They saw Jesus, the man. But of course, we can see that same glory, not with our physical eyes, but with the eyes of faith. As we read the Gospel of John and we see Jesus on every page, by faith, we are seeing the glory of God manifest in the flesh. This glory is then further characterized. It's a glory full of grace and truth. Now that pair of words, grace and truth, almost certainly echoes another uh, pair of words we find often in the Old Testament. Steadfast love and faithfulness. There's a very dramatic moment in the life of Moses where where he says to God, show me your glory. God says, I'm gonna cause my glory to pass before you. So God goes before Moses, and then he speaks, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding uh, in steadfast love and faithfulness, those two terms. There is a gracious, undeserved love and loyalty to his people. God displays his glory to Moses in that way. And John is commenting on that and saying, you wanna know where the steadfast love and faithfulness of God are revealed supremely? They're revealed supremely in the face and the person of Jesus Christ. There we see the grace of God displayed fully. The undeserved goodness of God is demonstrated in Jesus. This is at the heart of Christianity. Christianity doesn't say, God threw down a rope from heaven and he said to mankind, climb it. Get up here. It's the opposite of Christianity. Christianity says, God threw down a rope from heaven. He came down himself. 
to seek us out who are running from him and to bring us to himself. It's undeserved goodness of God is manifested supremely in Jesus. Same point is made in verse 18. No one has ever seen God, right? No one has ever seen God with their eyes, but the only God, the Son, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. The Son reveals God climactically, decisively, and perfectly. What Jesus does, God does. When Jesus picks up little children to bless them, when he heals lepers, God is blessing children. God is bringing healing to lepers. It's not just the words of Jesus that reflect God, but he himself is God in the flesh, and everything he does reveals the truth about God. Two implications. First, to seek to know God apart from Jesus is an act of rebellion and evil. God has told us decisively what he's like in the incarnation. This is who I am. And to try to gain access to God and to know him apart from Christ is to reject God's word to you about who he is. It's to worship and serve a God of your own imagination. Every religion and system of thought that rejects Jesus as God incarnate is a spiritual dead end. We need to emphasize this because we live in a very religiously pluralistic world. We've got all kinds of spiritualities and religions jostling for attention. And sort of the enlightened view you're supposed to take, you're cultured and sophisticated, I'm being ironic, incidentally, uh, is that all, all of these uh, religions and spiritualities are equally valid. They're all saying one thing, basically. And Christians have to say that's false. We can know God truly only in Christ. To reject him is to reject the knowledge of God. We can, in fact, come into a relationship with God by no other means than his son Jesus. It says in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There's an exclusivity uh, to the gospel and to the truth about Jesus. Second implication, if God's glory shines fully and decisively in Christ, we should pay attention to that glory. We shouldn't be so busy uh, buying homes, working hard, being busy with all the challenges of life that we neglect the glory of God in the face of Jesus. How does spiritual transformation happen? According to scripture, it doesn't happen mainly through white knuckling it right? Striving harder to be better. There's a place for that. There is a place for spirit-empowered effort in the spiritual life. But at the heart of spiritual renewal and transformation is beholding Jesus by faith, day after day. And as we see him and see God in him, we are increasingly conformed to, the, to his image. This is what the Apostle Paul uh, tells us in 2 Corinthians 3:18. Listen carefully. And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord seeing it by faith as a result are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. That's transformation by beholding. How do you change? How do your loves change? How do you become a person who more and more loves what God loves and hates what God hates? According to scripture, it's by continuously looking at Jesus, his incarnation, his life, his teaching, his death, his resurrection, his present reign at the right hand of God, his priestly work, his kingly work, his prophetic work. It's by faith we internalize this day after day. 
we are changed and we become more like him. Are you beholding the glory of Jesus Christ day after day? Are you feeding on him and becoming more like him? If not, this passage challenges us all to take seriously the call uh, to look at Jesus as the final display of God's glory, to feed on him daily, and to become like him. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we, we stand in awe of you. We stand in awe that you have come down to us, unasked for, unlooked for, and you have been pleased to give even your life for our redemption. Lord, we love you. And we ask that you would be pleased this coming week and indeed for the rest of our lives to show us more and more of who you are. Grant us to see more and more of the splendor of God in you as you are revealed on every page of scripture. Amen.